mai kako. This is Nohealani with Native Stories. Today we have Helena Kapuni Reynolds, a PhD student at UH Manoa in American Studies, writing his dissertation on the history of Keokaha and Hawaiian homesteading. And today will be talking to us about Puhi Bay and the founding of the Keokaha com- homestead community. Welcome, um, Helena. Take it away. Thank you, Nohea. It's great to be here. So, welcome to Puhi Bay. And um, Puhi Bay is a significant site for our community. It's a place that we consider to be one of the pico, or one of the centers of the community. Um, Over the years, families have used it as a place to hang out, to enjoy with their ohana, the ocean, in the beautiful waters. Um, they have camped there in the summers. There are funerals that are held there, community events. So it's a really active space and it is a beloved space by the community. And I'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, some of the features of Puhi Bay it is one of the few places along the coastline where you can bring in. Um, ocean vessels that require deeper harbors. There's a little bit of a, a deep kind of bay area where you can bring in some va'akaulua, some double-hulled canoes. Um, so it's known for that. There was a heiau located within this place previously um, that was dedicated to a shark aqua um, named Kua. And it was a former site of a coastal home that was owned and cared for by Emma Aimanavahi. Not too sure if she cared for that home alongside her husband, Joseph Navahi, but definitely Emma had this, had a parcel of land there, opened it up to the community when the homestead was founded, um, and um, her home was known as Kailana. That was one of the, the names that we came across in our research of this particular Vahipana. One of the interesting things about Puhi Bay is that, um, as you can see here, it's quite well manicured as a recreational park. Um, this is all managed and cared for by the community uh, because Puhi Bay is actually on Hawaiian homelands. It is not a county or a state park, and the county and the state do not have any obligations to care for the, the grounds here. So it's really the community ensuring that this space is public and open um, not just for community members, but also for the general public. And so um, the cut grass that you see, the coconut trees that are trimmed, all of the the improvement work that has been done to make it a more safer um, coastline for Ohana to come and enjoy, that has been because of the community's work there. The other thing I wanted to, to briefly mention is um, earlier we went into the water and you could feel how cold the water is. And so that's one of the beautiful and unique things about our coastline, unlike um, other parts of of Hawaii Island and um, the archipelago, is that our waters are very cold. Um, We have many brackish water springs and ponds, and this has to do with the amount of groundwater that seeps out of the bays and the coasts here. Um, There are many ponds, along the Kilkaha coastline, many of which are very cold, like you feel here in Puhi Bay. And much of those waters come from the aquifers from Mauna Kea. So, you know, that whole water cycle 
and how it ends up coming back out of the ground in our springs. We have lots of that happening in Kyokaha. Which you can see, from, you can see from the beach of Puhi Bay. Yes, so um, particularly at low tide, if you go with your kids or just by yourself, you'll see groundwater literally just seeping out of the ground and going into the bay. Um, it makes it a quite an interesting beach experience because, I mean, I don't really like staying in very cold water very often, but it's a very refreshing feeling. Uh, my favorite part of it is that you don't have to actually sh- take a shower afterwards because you don't feel sticky because you're swimming basically in, in a mixture of fresh and salt water. So it's quite refreshing. Um, when we do ceremony or other culturally significant events, um, Puhi Bay is a, a place that we do that. For example, um, I graduated from a charter school that's based in the community called Kianala Ahana. And when we graduated, we performed a hi'uvai ceremony, a cleansing ceremony, where we went to Puhi Bay at four in the morning, um, did our genealogies for our families to hear, and then we submerged ourselves in the water. And as you can imagine, four o'clock in the morning in brackish water is quite cold and will wake you up immediately and so um, that's something that I remember within my own personal life doing at Puhi Bay Um, another quick story is that um, in the past one of the things that our school did was we'd partner with Sig Zane and they would create um, signature kind of designs for each class and then the class would use those that design as their graduation wear so Sig Zane would create uh, mu'u and shirts for the graduates in that print, and then they'd actually print it and sell it in their stores. So for my class, which is the class of 2009, um, our print was called Keokaha. The print was the Keokaha print, and it featured um, the currents as well as a particular design that our class created that represented who we were. Um, and we called ourselves the Ahikanana, or like the fierce Ahi, because we were quite a rebellious class. Um, and we had that conversation around the design at Puhi Bay. So that site for my, not just for myself, but for my class and their families, because ma- many of us came from Keokaha was, and it still is quite integral to who we are as a community and as a people there. So Keokaha um, is where Puhi Bay is. Um, and you're doing your research on that. Uh, can you tell us more about the founding of the Keokaha Homestead community? Absolutely. So uh, one of the things I want to quickly point out is that you see right across the street, um, in the front street is Kalaniano Ole Avenue, you'll see um, some of our oldest homestead homes and lots. Those front street homes are actually the founding lots and leases and and locations of the homestead proper. And I'll get into that. So um, in the 20s, when the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act was being formed, Keokaha itself was designated as a site where they would um, develop Hawaiian homesteads. It became... uh, uh, It's known as one of the oldest homestead communities in existence. I think the... The ones that are older are Kalamaula and Ho'olehua on the island of Molokai. But Keokaha is unique because it is the first, quote-unquote, experiment in residential homesteads, i.e. when the commission decided that um, rather than just create agricultural 
um, homestead communities that they would experiment with the idea of providing folks with an acre to half acre lot um, near an urban center for their ohana to be able to continue homesteading, to grow their own food, to malama their ohana, their families. Um, but also so that, um, you know, whoever the moneymaker was in the family could go to their jobs and then return home. So Keokaha was an early model of that. And um, when we look back at the newspapers and other reports, it was quite a success at that time. Can you give us a timeline of like when the act passed um, to when like the different, the ag in Molokai and then here? When did that happen? I'll do my best. So we're talking about the 1920s. So this is when... Hawaiian Homes Commission Act is passed at the U.S. Congress and the Hawaiian Homes Commission is formed. Kalamaula and Ho'olehua are formed, I believe, in 1921 and 22. Um, they're celebrating their centennial. I think it's this year or last year. It's quite recent. Keokaha or talks around Kilkaha and the establishment of the community occurs in 1924 and 1925. And interestingly, what happens is the commission is formed. There's an understanding that, okay, now we have to figure out how where all these lands are going to come from. And so they identify where these homesteads will be, but they actually have to survey the acreage, because they did not know what it was. So somewhere in between determining where the homesteads would be and figuring out what would be designated as homelands, because again, these are lands that the territory owned that would then become converted into homesteads, into homestead land. And so... What happened in Kilkaha was there's the announcement that Kilkaha is going to be the new homestead. There is a lot of traction and interest in the Hilo community amongst the Hawaiian community in Hilo um, to develop this homestead. Something happens, and I haven't quite figured out the exact details yet, where in between the commission announcing the opening of, of Kilkaha and... Um, well, in the founding of the community, people just ended up moving there. Um, the commission did not survey the land yet, so there was no clear idea of where Hawaiian homes in Kilkaha would be. But the people in Hilo already knew, well, it's going to be somewhere, so why don't we just go there and right. and settle and to, and to just start? And so our earliest homestead lots, or our earliest homesteaders in Kilkaha, the commission and the territory really just saw them as squatters, as people who just kind of made house um, on these lands. And so they referred to them as such in the notes. And what happens is that around the same time, this is when the territory um, is selling off large tracts of land to be able to fund the government. And so um, you see, for example, down the road here in Keokaha, they begin to sell off the Lehia lands, the lands that aren't necessarily designated as Hawaiian homelands, um, to the highest bidder. A lot of it is public auction. So what happens by Puhi Bay is that, ironically, and, or maybe not ironically, maybe intentionally, um, the territory 
wants to sell off the lands fronting that Kalaniana Ole Avenue. They wanted to sell those coastal lots to the highest bidder, and so they advertised it as such in the newspapers, locally and in Honolulu. And so people in Hilo see this. They're not happy. People are already living there, so those folks are wondering, well, what's going to happen to me and my family? And so what happens is there's a convening of a halavai in Hilo uh, where the community comes together, voices their concerns around the commission, and they develop a petition. And what I find interesting is because, I mean, a lot of us in Hawaii know about the ku'e petitions. And so what, how I see this petition in the 1920s is part of this culture of, of petitioning the government for your needs. Um, this is something, and so the Kilkaha petition is part of that longer history. So um, this petition is formulated, essentially the items that are listed, their demands is that um, those who have settled in Kilkaha um, be given those lots and to not be kicked out. They demand recognition that these are Hawaiian homelands, that they should not be sold off, and that the county should essentially take those properties off of the auction block. And they send this petition to Governor Farrington at the time. I, I've seen the petition. It was printed in the Hawaiian language newspapers. I haven't found the actual petition that was sent in. Um, and I want to find it because according to the, the articles around it, there was maybe about 250 people who signed it. So I want to find it at some point because <laughs> I'd want to know who signed it. But um, they send it in. It's a sec- to him and the commission. And they're successful. The territory pulls those lots off of the, the auction block, and they become part of, of what is surveyed as Hawaiian homelands in Keokaha. So those are our, our oldest lots from the 20s. Um, one of the ohana there that's still there today, um, a somewhat well-known ohana, in, uh, Hilo ohana, is the Kanako Oles. So Auntie Edith Kanako Oles' mother, um, she was one of the first homesteaders and who actually brought their ohana in before it was formerly homesteads and now continue to live there. Um, some of the ohana still reside on that lot. Um, and it ties into Puhi Bay because it's not surprising, even in the 20s, that the county would want to sell these lots to the highest bidder because if you can imagine in the past, I mean, nowadays, Kilkaha is very heavily um, shrubbed. There's lots of trees growing. It's very jungle-like. That wasn't always the case in the past. It was much more, there were more coastal grasslands, um, more volcanic fields with some sparse ohia growth and maybe some vive, but not as as heavily vegetated as it is today. There was no, well, there is a former sewage treatment plant here that is now an aquaculture center for UH Hilo. So that wasn't all here. And as you can imagine, you have this gorgeous view of the bay. And right across the bay on a beautiful sunny day, you can see Mauna Kea in all of its glory. So it's quite, when it comes to oceanfront properties, it is a, an ideal location to have those kinds of properties. So for our community, it's really a win and a victory that we were able to hold on to, this, to these lands because otherwise they would have been targeted to be sold to the highest bidder and would have been... I mean, we see it across the islands where where the very wealthy receive these coastal lots and they build huge houses. They can't 
or you can't see the beach at all. Absolutely. So, so we see it as a, as a win in our community that we were able to really hold on to these, to these lands and say, this is Hawaiian homelands. This is not for folks who can afford to buy it, but for folks who really need these lands in order to survive and to raise their ohana. Do you want to talk about um, the Puhi Bay area? Is there any other stories you want to share? Yeah, sure. So um, as somebody who does a lot of place-based research, that's that's a lot of my interest is the stories that are contained within single places. I mean, we can Puhi Bay is a place that I can talk about for hours because there's so many stories that I've kind of grown up with, I've heard from other people, I mean, it, it just speaks to the ways in which our landscape is so storied. So um, in addition to the place named Puhi Bay, which I've talked about previously, there are a few other names of places around that area. But one in particular I want to highlight is uh, Kulapai. So there's actually two name variations I've come across. And this is another point to remember about Vahipana and place names is that you're going to find variations and neither there's never going to be a single correct pronunciation or or um, way to spell the name, we should embrace and accept all of the spelling variations because they each have their own stories. So Kulapai is how um, we know it today and how I learned it growing up. But there is also Kulepai, which has a completely different meaning. Um, but Kulapai, as I was told, refers to the ways in which the waves come um come up onto the coastline and make the the wainaku and the coastal grasses kind of dance in the water. So referring to that motion of of the waters and and the grasses moving with the tide. Um, But the name itself also refers to the fact that it's this kula, it's this kind of open area where you can bring a canoe, where you can pie in a va'a. It's a canoe landing site as well. So this particular area in the community... um, I mean, you, you see it today. It's quite an open, grassy area. There, more recently, because of COVID, um, there has been a lot more outdoor recreational activities. Um, volleyball is a big thing in the Kelkaha community, and so because of the COVID restrictions, what they've done is hold um, outdoor volleyball tournaments right in Kulapai just so that folks aren't in the gyms and so there's more air circulation. So it's been wonderful to see that to see our community engaged in very healthy activities and, and things that are pro- promoting vigor and just good healthy habits. Um, but in addition to some of these outdoor tournaments, uh, Kulapai is, an, is another place within this small area where, where families gather, where they have different luau for funerals or first, first birthday parties for weddings um, and you'll notice there is a concrete kind of site. It's basically just like a, all it looks like is a concrete slab in the middle of this this area. Um, and there's some restrooms you can see. But it used to be the site of what was known as Hawaiian Village. So this was uh, in the 50s and the 60s. Um, it was a site that was developed to be a multi-purpose site. So at one end, um, it was kind of like a a big open pavilion that the community used for parties and other events. And additionally, um, it was a place where folks in the community would go and sell um, their crafts and their arts to those who came off of the cruise ships 
because we're located next to Kuhio Pier, which is where all, a lot of the cruise ships um, continue till this day to come and dock and the visitors would leave. So it was a multi-use space for recreation and economic reasons. And at some point, um, they tore it down probably because it, it became dilapidated. And it's called Hawaiian Village because attached to the pavilion was these kind of mock thatched halepili that, that community members built um, to kind of demonstrate like a past Hawaiian life. So that's why it's still known as Hawaiian Village today for folks in the community. It's still used as a, as a community gathering site. Um, interestingly, Puhibe and Kulapai, because they're on Hawaiian homes, right, in the summer, well, pre-COVID in the summer, there would be a lottery where families could essentially <coughs> put their name into a lottery. If they're pit chosen, um, they can reserve a kind of like a temporary lot in Puhibe or Kulapai. Nothing big, a few square feet for 20 by 40 so that they can camp there all summer. So one of the things I always remember growing up is that in the summertime, all you see is this village of 20 by 40 tents and people just hanging out and residing and, and living at Puhibe and Kulapai for the summer with their families. Um, if you ask some of the community members, they'll tell you more about, like, some of those folks have done that every year growing up. I wasn't one of those families. <laughs> but I remember going to some of my friends' tents and... Um, you know, it's a different experience when you get to kind of live there for a prolonged period of time and to camp there for months as opposed to just a few days. There's still a few um, Karnakalavai'a fishermen who who know the different fishing spots, who care for them. Um, when I was growing up, and I'm not sure how much of it is still available today, um, the pond itself or Puhi Bay is used to be filled with limu ele ele because it loves that brackish water and I remember once my grandfather <laughs> made me and I was a kid at this time he made me like go with the like an empty co-op container and go and get all the limu ele ele because he wanted because he was ono for it um so I did that in the bay once now I well in the past they had, there was a invasive algae just kind of covering everything and I think um nowadays it's kind of been cleaned out and I sometimes see limu ele ele growing there. So there's these various pockets, too, that were really abundant. Mm -hmm. And we see that in historically, too, that Keokaha worked and was a success in terms of Hawaiian homesteading, not only because folks were able to grow their own food, but because there was such an abundance of marine resources. So those folks actually had an abundance of food as opposed to struggling to figure out how do you cultivate lands that aren't necessarily high-grade ag lands, which is part of the story of Hawaiian homesteading. So absolutely, lots of lava'i'a. Um, one of the other interesting facts about our community, about the early Hawaiian homestead communities, is they become places where Ike Hawaii or Hawaiian knowledge and people who are knowledgeable in various Hawaiian skills kind of end up. A lot of experts end up in Kilkaha in the early years, experts in fishing, in farming, in chanting, and dance. And we see that in our community's history. Quick story about the fishing, folks. So there was a man named Joseph Ko'omoa, and I recently found this out. Um, he was one of the first homesteaders. He was very active in the Improvement Association that we had in the 20s. But he also started an initiative where 
he organized some of the Levaya in Hilo and in Kilkaha. And they would go and they would go fishing to supply fish for the, for the fish markets in Hilo. Um, they were really trying to figure out and experiment with, again, trying to make a livelihood with what they knew um, and to, to supply Hilo and to, to compete with other kind of more commercial fishermen. And their take was that they were going to try to do this through Hawaiian methods, through like hukilao or... Say, did they throw net or were they fishing with like line or diving or <laughs> probably all of those yeah. things but it's such an amazing story that um, I hope to learn more about over the next coming years because it's people in the community taking the initiative to to try to make a living for themselves and their families using the t- skills that they've learned from their from their fathers grandfathers and so forth so um a very strong fishing and farming and arts kind of culture within the community that still exists to today. Wow, that sounds like a really awesome community to grow up in. Um, I definitely wish I had that in my own community. Uh, so to wrap up, um, do you have any last words? Sure. Um one of the things I, d- I did recently with my aunt, her name is Mapuanoi Pa, is uh, we contributed to a book called Detours, A Decolonial Guide to Hawaii. It's published through Duke University Press. Um, I'd encourage any of the listeners who are interested to learn more about our community to purchase that book, and not just to learn about Keokaha, but many places across Hawaii. And our chapter focuses on Puhi Bay, Kulapai, and a few other places along our coast, and we... Um, it's part of a tour that we actually give to folks who come to our community. We don't do it often, but when we're asked, um, we do it for folks. Um, the invitation is open for whoever would want to learn more about our community and our history. And so that is a great place um, to get more of an introduction into what I've just um, talked about today. But again, um, we're more than happy to host and to in, to talk story with folks who want to learn more about our community and our struggles, but also our accomplishments. Um, oftentimes, you know, we hear we hear the the well, how would I want want to put it? Kind of just like the sad parts of our histories of our communities, like the conflicts, the the struggles. But within those moments, we still have these these moments of happiness where folks are trying to figure out just how to live, where they're making do with what they have, and they do it in such a way that um, is beautiful and should be spoken and remembered alongside some of those 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 struggles that we've also had as a community. So the invitation is open. We'd love to have you folks, and mahalo for having us. Thank you, Helena. Um- one more thing is that he is writing his book so his PhD is um, hopefully ending as soon as that book is done (laughs) so maybe you can look out for that as well Uh, wrapping up here with uh, this interview thank you for joining us Uh, you can reach us always at Our Native Stories on Instagram and and Facebook um, or our website and follow us um, on any of the podcast stations and download our our um, our mobile app as well. Mahalo. Holy ho.